Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Patio, just brilliant to see another happy, smiling face, really. So nice to be out of the house. So good. Great to see you too. We've got Ms. Ro Murray. Hello, hello, everybody. Hello, Mr. Dan Salmon. Hello. It is nice to be out of the house and I'm hoping everyone else is still at home because that's where you should be. Yes. Stay at home, wash your hands. And my name would be Vanessa Taholka. I'm loving all these health and safety tips that we're getting (laughs) getting familiar with here. Hey, welcome to Bite Into It for another week. Um, We are stoked to have you listening with us. Tonight, uh, Telstra have downgraded their top NBN plan as so few customers could access it. And what does this say about Australia's broadband capabilities? Swinburne's Dr Stephen Conway is here to discuss, well, he will be here on the phone, to discuss the gaps between the hype and our reality. Also later in the show, have you heard of the Agile methodology or Agile ways of working? What would an Agile community or even an Agile nation look like? We're going to break it down with Monash academic Rashina Hoda. That's what's coming up later in the show this evening. Before we get there, a bit of news. What, what's been happening with the uh, AFP team? Well, the AFP um, aren't entirely popular at the moment with a lot of people. They have uh, finally admitted after multiple, multiple freedom of information requests to using the controversial Clearview AI on Tuesday this week. Well, yesterday. Um, So for those who aren't familiar, Clearview AI actually scrapes social media images. They've got about 3 billion images on file and can identify people actually using low quality and even blurry images. As a result, when it comes to law enforcement, there are a lot of concerns about the accuracy and the risk of false convictions. And an AFP spokesperson is now on record in a press statement as saying, we are actively looking to improve our processes and governance (laughs) without necessarily constraining innovative investigative approaches. So it's another little nail in the coffin for privacy. Um, Yeah. And we can be proud that one of the co-founders is uh, one of our own, an Aussie entrepreneur. (laughs) There you go. Thanks, Pam. All right. Well, worth looking into Clearview AI. Exactly. In Amazon news, Amazon um, Worldwide is set to hire um, tons and tons of people. So they previously announced that they were filling 100,000 positions to cope with the extra demand during these pandemic-fueled times. Since then, they have announced a further 75,000 workers worldwide. And we're here to tell you that some of those jobs, hundreds indeed, will be in Australia. So that's kind of interesting. They are an American online retail giant. And we're talking about jobs in fulfillment centres. So these are warehouses of goods that need to be rapidly packed with really high targets on service delivery and um, some challenges with social distancing Mm -hmm. within the warehouses themselves. So we would like to say, hey, look, any jobs in these challenging times are are welcome, um, but uh, employee beware. Absolutely. I think it's important that um, we we are wary of, uh, you know, uh, I suppose being taken advantage of in times when there are people who are desperately looking for work. Yeah, Mm. and Um, very very specifically, um, we've had a couple of whistleblowers from one of the warehouse... um, 
operations in San Francisco, oh, oh in the States, uh, a couple of user experience designers um, say that they lost their jobs after circulating a petition about COVID-19 risks for, um, for warehouse workers mm. at Amazon. I think it's a real credit to them and no surprise to anyone who works with user experience designers mm. that they were the ones who saw the problem, called out who's at the front line, who's at risk here, and went, no, this is really important. We actually need to do something about this. So well done to Emily Cunningham and Marin Costa who put themselves on the line there for other people. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, we've got a little bit of news. It is related to the ongoing COVID-19 situation. <laughs> we can't really avoid it, I, I, you know. But <laughs> I know we'd it's, love it, to be talking about other things. But here to, we are. Here we are. But um, no, it's it's it'd be interesting to see um, a. There's been a surge in on in piracy. No, who knew? Right? Oh gosh. So well, look. I think that those people who hold copyright were possibly celebrating over the last few years the fact that um, you know torrenting and piracy. And I use piracy with inverted commas, about, mm. you know, it's a, it's a fraught term, um, has gone down as a result of the availability of, you know, streaming services where you can pay a pittance for access to content and the people who make that um, content get a fraction of said pittance. So um, with the fact that people are now, you know, spending a lot more time at home, uh, there's been a massive uptick in uh, downloading um through torrents and other means that might not necessarily be considered legal by certain people. Oh, it's a real challenge because, um, look, whilst none of these streaming services are perfect and don't pay perfectly, where we're starting to see improvements for content makers is in the commissioning of content yes. and, you know, having new avenues, new channels to distribute has been a real boon for some makers um, within our local community. So, look, I think... It's an unfortunate trend, but it's a reality. Mm. But if you are also using streaming services, please look out for the Aussie content there and give it a watch. Mm -hmm. I, I can definitely recommend Ronnie Cheng, international student, as a brilliant, you know, uh, a brilliant Excellent. way of virtually experiencing uh, some outdoors in Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> and while we're talking about streaming oh, things, um, there was an interesting. Uh, I think Four Corners did a thing about Amazon uh, last week relating to the pr um, previous article. Oh, really? Yeah. So. So there was a lot of uh, talk about Amazon's business practices. It wasn't specific yeah, so around employment. Yes, jump on your iViews, yeah, so, your SBS mm -hmm. on yep. demand, all those sort of things. Well worth yep. a watch. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Support the good guys. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, take some time away from your jigsaw puzzle and watch some TV. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Hey, time to listen to some music and then we're going to get on to our amazing guests this evening. Melbourne's own Triple R. Bite into it with Ro, Dan and Vanessa. Thanks for being with us this evening. Dr Stephen Conway is Senior Lecturer and Course Director for Games and Interactivity at Swinburne University. We don't want to generalise about the amount of bandwidth gamers use, but let's say they often have a stake in good broadband performance. That's why tonight we're exploring the current NBN picture with Stephen. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you. Now, you've written extensively over the years um, about the potential the NBN could bring to uh, Australian customers and uh, the importance of having really quality broadband services. Um, recently, you wrote about some of the new Telstra plans. Can you tell us what they had to say? Um, sure. I actually, I've only wrote, written very little about the NBN, but what I have written exploded. It seems to be the zeitgeist. People seem very angry about their broadband, mm. uh, and with good, with good reason. Um, 
Telstra's latest announcement, which which happened uh, a few weeks back now, even a few months maybe, is that they cannot promise across a lot of households the maximum NBN speed, which is 100 megabits. Therefore, they are going to limit the available plans across a lot of households to lower speeds. Yeah, that's very disappointing development there. Is it indicative of other plans in the market? Um, it's a widespread problem simply mm. due to the fact that the government, the, the recent government um, decision to reverse a lot of good decisions and instead of going further to the premises to use what they call a mixed methods approach, which is however we can supply broadband, we're going to supply it. And that is two things generally, fibre to the curb, fibre to the node. And the analogy is basically this, fibre to the premises is a super highway straight to your doorstep. So you can imagine lots of lanes, high speed, but the, the mixed methods approach is analogous to you get off the highway and then you're on a country lane for the last mile to your house. And just as you expect, it's a craggy lane. There's a lot of gaps. There's a lot of traffic jams because a lot of people are trying to get down that, tra- that little lane and it just cannot cope with it. It's incredibly disappointing. Uh, Steve, what have, uh, like, where do we stand compared to other uh, comparable nations around the world in terms of broadband? I don't uh, think you need to continue with your answer there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, good Lord. If, if we say comparable in terms of who's getting similar speeds, well, looking at the latest data available in March on speedtest.net, Um, We've jumped up two spots from February. You'll be glad to know we are now comfortably above Kazakhstan (laughs) and we've jumped ahead of Vietnam and Kosovo. Oh, amazing. We're still 60 seconds, so we're below Montenegro, Uruguay, Jordan, and a bunch of others. But we're we're feisty and we're coming back with a vengeance. (laughs) We might actually beat Trinidad and Tobago, who are a good 10 places above us. Look, no shade on those other fine nations, but um, I do find it very disappointing um, where our performance is. Steve, what does this mean in terms of Australia's consumer experience and then um, indeed our, our business opportunities? Well, the consumer experience is going to be terrible in a few years. Uh, right now, we can just about get by. So to to give your listeners really concrete terms. If you are watching Netflix at 4K, that's roughly taking up around 25 megabits. So most households can only hit 50 megabits. So if you've got one person in your household watching Netflix at 4K, then the rest of the household are going to struggle to do much else. Yeah, don't expect to get your Animal Crossing work at any speed if you're watching (laughs) Netflix at the same time. You'll be struggling. I'm on 100 megabits and I had my child watching Netflix downstairs. I was watching, I was on Zoom at a teleconference and my partner was downloading something and she had to stop the download because I couldn't run my Zoom meeting. And it's devastating. It's devastating Mm. when you can't be Zoom bombed because there's just not enough bandwidth for that to happen. (laughs) Well, I was actually trying to Zoom bomb and that was doubly frustrating. (laughs) So, um, yeah, she got in the way of that. So at the moment, the consumer experience is bearable. But by 2023, so people have a lot of internet-connected devices, 
um, in that household. You know, today you've got your console, you've got your laptop, you might have your television, some people even their speakers and, and heating and so on. But by 2023, the Australian Communications and Media Authority report predicted 18 internet-connected devices per household by 2023. Imagine 18 devices trying to share 50 megabits. It's mm. You just think about that, consumers, if you're thinking about that internet fridge and be like, do I really want this to be one of my 18 connections? (laughs) How reliant do you want to be? You've got a family to think of? It's terrible, isn't it? Yeah. The microwave or the the fridge. Um, And so for the the economy, well, any, any industry that relies upon data is in trouble, which is to say most Mm. Australian industries that take place in the city so uh from you know since i'm I'm in games i can tell you an anecdote shared with me from a director of a game studio he was doing he was outsourcing work from an american company it was cheaper to send someone with an external hard drive with all of the latest data from the day backed up on a plane to america with the data than to upload it from the offices it was quicker well, that does that does sound like a dated anecdote now when we're talking about plane travel. <laughs> but um, oh, we do we do take your point. That is brutal, mm, and I think a lot of our listeners will be experiencing this at, at the moment, just in in real time in real life, with so much self isolating, vast volumes of people working from home that they've never done before, and everyone's on Zoom or WebEx or Skype at the same time, and. Um, Obviously, anecdotally, you just need to look at Twitter on your average day. It's just a, you know, absolute dive bomb session of getting cut off, (laughs) trying to conduct meetings and not being able to proceed. So, um, you know, when it's bearable now and it's just going to get worse, it's not the best look. No, (laughs) absolutely not. (laughs) So, Steve, the MBN infrastructure project was sold to us as, you know, the future of so many industries, including health. So telehealth was a really big use case for what this um, what this service would do for us. We're in a time where remote health services delivery is actually um, really uh, necessary and we're just seeing people hop on phone calls and that sort of thing. But, you know, what do we see here in terms of lost potential? Well... Uh, there is so much that could have been done with the original fibre-to-the-premises plan. It was future-proof. We could have handled all of that data, all of those services simultaneously without breaking a sweat. Right now, we are like someone who hasn't went for a run because we've been in quarantine for, you know, six months, and all of a sudden we've got to run a marathon. So we are really sweating, and we're under stress, and we... Are losing out on so many ways in which we could have improved not only our, you know, lockdown life, but our economic um, health. In, in a nutshell, we we're really going to suffer. So while he was eroding the plan for the MBN, um, Malcolm Turnbull started throwing around terms like, you know, what we have on paper here is gold you know, gold standard, it's gold-plated, we don't need that, we just need it to be good and functional and, you know, the average Australian family, what, only needs, was it 25? <laughs> did, did he say 25 megabits per second? Yeah, it might have been lower. It's a, it's a long time ago now. Mm. Yeah. Uh, 
what do we think that today's usage kind of reflects? And you know, when we look back on on his comments, how reasonable do we think that that was? That that the plan at the time was gold plated. Uh, it's just an absolutely. It's what I would call an apple pie phrase. It's something that makes you go mm, like saying democracy or freedom, but it actually means nothing. Um, it's a problem where we say, you know, let's say a decade ago, a 10 megabit connection, five years ago even, a 10 megabit connection might have sufficed, but five years down the pipe, all of a sudden we're saying 50 megabits is struggling. That exponential growth is just going to continue, and we've already hit the limit. So it was not good enough when it was announced that they were changing this plan. And now we're in real dire straits because we are at the hard limit. There's nothing we can do so, you know, to improve it. So venting has been quite cathartic, I'm not going to lie. But <laughs> what hope is there for the future, Steve? Like, If we need to improve this, we absolutely need to, how do we make the case for change? Can Australia afford the change? Can we afford not to? We have to. We have to, and it's going to cost billions of dollars, but it's billions of dollars we need to spend. If we are going to be a first world economy, if that's the hope for Australia, if that's what we want to continue to be, we need to put the money up front now, and we need to spend, we need need that fibre to the premises infrastructure in place as soon as possible. When I say that, as soon as possible is still many months, if not a year or two away. And that's if we act now. So we're going we're gonna to suffer for a long time because of some short-sighted decisions in the past. Uh, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, should we be lobbying at the federal level? Is there anything that can be done at the state level with, on, a, on a project with this sort of magnitude? No, uh, look, I'm obviously, you might be able to tell from my accent, I'm not from here, so I'm not <laughs> too familiar with the legal situation and interaction between the federal and the state, but I would assume it must be a federal initiative because it needs to be Australia-wide. It's no good having that capacity in Victoria if the rest of Australia doesn't because the economy is still going to implode because we're going to leave other states behind that I'm sure we're going to be working with. It needs to be a national initiative, and so it needs to be a federal initiative. Mm. Steve, you, you mentioned just before, uh, you know, we obviously we need this infrastructure, we need to move to the fibre, the original fibre-to-the-premises model that was the, was the uh, model from the mm. outset. But you said, I noticed, um, you know, this could take months. Do you really think it would only take months to undo all of the damage that the change in policy did? No. <laughs> no, to be honest, I, I can. I'm, I'm not a politician, so I can, you know, reverse my my comments. And yeah, in, in reality, it's going to take at least. Well, considering where we are right now with COVID, it's going to take years. Which we probably yeah. don't have. Probably <laughs> not have yet. If you have yeah. a time machine, maybe we should just research that. If we can get that going, we'll solve all of the other problems. Well, I mean, there are plans for time machines in other countries, but it will take years to download them, so we'll need to... <laughs> we'll have the bandwidth. We'll be tethering to our phones to get it. 
going. I remember when the planes start again, we'll go over and uh, get with a head hard drive and pick it up. Come on, people! We can create the uh, the slowest, you know, hottest phone run mesh network ever. <laughs> Absolutely, get your tin cans and bits of string out. We oh, are on it. Love it. <laughs> hey, um, Steve, thanks so much for speaking with us about broadband tonight. We've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Conway. He's a senior lecturer at Swinburne University of Technology, and he has opinions. I feel like you must be a tremendously entertaining lecturer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thanks for being with us. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Our next guest is Dr. Rashina Hoda, who is an Associate Professor with Monash University's Faculty of Information Technology. Previously, she was a senior lecturer in software engineering at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. So we're very lucky to have enticed her over the ditch. She's researched and written extensively on agile methodology, um, self-organising teams, and even the concept of an agile nation. Welcome, Rashina. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, So, Rashina, you first got on... uh, the radar of a lot of people when a TED talk that you gave went viral. Um, a trigger warning for people it was after the Christchurch massacre over in um, New Zealand, and you had some really interesting insights into the self-organising, the community organising, and the government response to that disaster. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about um, agile and what it means to you, and then and then we can talk about that particular event. Yeah, sure. Um, so let me start by asking you the question of the year, which is, can you hear me? Yes, <laughs> yes. we can hear you. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. And I'm sure our listeners can hear us as well. Um, yeah, uh, so Agile, the idea of Agile, I've been uh, sort of studying, investigating, uh, researching Agile for a very long time, and that's uh, probably in the order of uh, 15 to 20 years starting off with my doctoral thesis on um, a topic called self-organizing agile teams, so the idea of having empowering um, teams of people, workers who are empowered to take their own decisions. Um, So agile to me really means um, a set of um, guidelines that kind of influences how we think and how we act. So it's a very sort of um, abstract, at the very abstract level, it's that's what it means to me. Um, if we sort of trace it back to where that's come from, obviously, that has um, originated from agile software development in software engineering, uh, which was kind of laid down by the um, Agile Manifesto in 2001, talking about different ways of working in software development and focusing on the process of software development and trying to shift it from something that was very plan-driven and sequential into something that's a lot more human-centered and a lot more reactive and responsive. That's kind of where that's coming from. That's a great summary of um, Agile principles. And then when you started, you know, you'd already been focusing on self-organizing teams and um, people being empowered to be quite responsive to situations around them. When you were in the midst of the, um, you know, the aftermath of the Christchurch massacre, how did it get you thinking about community self-organizing? 
Sure. So um, I think what happens is um, as, as researchers, especially um, someone who's gone through the experience of uh, doing a independent piece of work for a very long time, also known as a PhD, <laughs> you kind of really, <laughs> I was about to add some other adjectives, but let's not do that. <laughs> you have immersed into that topic and kind of marinated in it for so long that uh, it kind of becomes second nature to start to look at things around you through that lens. And that, I think, is in essence what has happened in this um, sort of situation where I managed to relate the core agile principles from software engineering into looking at how uh, New Zealand as a nation responded to those tragic events. Um, because that was, you know, the, those events uh, represented a change, a horrific tragedy, but a change to the very core and the fabric of the New Zealand nation and what the, uh, the you know, the people stood for, the, what the culture stands for. Um, and, and when you look at that, um, and there have been similar incidents, unfortunately, around the world for a very long time. But it was the response, I think, that stood apart. Um, and that made me sort of think about it. And the more I thought about it, the more it seemed to be a, a really, you know, at the heart of it, an agile response. Uh, one of the most exemplary agile responses I've seen on a very wide sort of societal level. So, yeah, it's just the marinating in it and being able to look at it from that lens. So let's look, let's reflect on the four key values um, that originated out of agile software development, but that you really pivoted into how you looked at community response to emergencies, because I think they're really relevant to the time that we find ourselves in now. So normally with the, one of the values, we'd think about in, you know, putting individuals and in interactions prioritizing those over processes and tools. And what was your insight over that value? So, yeah, um, I, I guess I will sort of try and relate that to what it meant then, but more recently I've been thinking about how, as you kind of hinted at the moment, it applies into uh, a worldwide challenge that we're facing as, as a human race at the moment in terms of the COVID-19 Sorry, there, I said it again. It's been dropped. It's you just said one dropped. more time and, you know, this phone call might accidentally cut out. There's oh, no. no escape. <laughs> I was hearing you converse with the previous um, speaker and I'm like, oops. Um, but to be honest, I think um, it's, it's very, unfortunately, I find the concept of the Agile Nation in uh, very much back in relevance in the midst of this crisis that we are in right now. So focusing on that one uh, value that you just mentioned, which is people and interactions over processes and tools. And in, in that context, in the um, New Zealand um, Christchurch mosque attack context, unfortunately, what that meant was that, um, you know, you have processes and tools in place to um, sort of uh, go about responding to a particular crisis uh, or, or terrorism and so forth. But what trumped that in, in New Zealand was the humanitarian response, the focus on the people, the focus on um, it's us, it's not them. And, um, you know, we're in this together. And all of that sort of um, understanding and the language and the behavior that we saw all around us was just absolutely overwhelming. Um, so that, for me, was a, um, was, a, was a perfect example of the people interactions over processes and tools. Um, if I kind of relate that into the current situation, and I've been thinking about this a little bit more, all I would do to sort of modify that a little bit, um, to be an agile nation in the COVID-19 crisis, is to focus virtually 
still on meeting people, so we don't just drop it. We mm. kind of move to a virtual environment and make sure we still have that those interactions. And as well as that, the other tweak to be made is it's not about doing it over processes and tools, rather. Um, it's about doing it within the protocols and the rules because in this time, the protocols around, say, social distancing and the rules around um, advanced levels of hygiene and, and lockdown rules are super important. We can't ignore them. Yeah, I think there's something important to there that um, is about community, a sense of community and mm-hmm. uh, the importance of leadership you know, and you can't Absolutely. have one like either in isolation. You actually need to have them both working together. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, that's why I think uh, when I do talk about the latent idea of the Agile Nation, it is um, both, so you're absolutely right, it is the Agile tribes or the people and the Agile leadership. And this is coming directly from uh, the theory of becoming Agile, which is one of my more recent uh, sort of um, theories based on empirical evidence. And that talks about the fact that um, in the software context, you have to have managers that are ready to trust their people and empower them. And you have to have workers who are ready to take on that autonomy and be responsibly autonomous and actually um, assert that autonomy to take good decisions. Yeah, and, and buy whether, into that plan, yeah. Absolutely. And whether we like it or not, with this current situation in the remote um, working from home scenario, a lot of managers, again, whether they were ready for it or not, have had to trust their people to be responsibly autonomous and it is for people then to display that autonomy in a responsible manner and make sure that we have we have productivity but also that we are taking care of our mental health All at right. the same time yes so let's work our way through the rest of the values we've got working software over comprehensive documentation and i think for people who haven't worked as software developers they might be surprised that there's a methodology that's very successful in terms of software development where we go no don't prioritise the doco. It's actually about being really responsive and getting things done in the right way, you know, serving the, the problems we're trying to solve. How how does this work if we take it out of a software-specific lens? Yeah, but before we do that, I was just about to say that one of the reasons it's so popular, to be honest, is because developers, if you know anything about developers, they love this one. <laughs> <laughs> Guilty, Yes. Well, I Absolutely mean, we well we we flex between the uh, RAT uh, sorry <laughs> RTFM type of people, and I'm not going to spell that out because we are a family friendly show at this time. <laughs> but for those who know, know, um, and then the people who just don't want to document anything. <laughs> sure. So I, I think uh, that particular value from the software context is really trying to capture the essence of uh, measuring progress. So how do you measure progress in whatever it is that you're doing, not just software development? Um, and in terms of the Agile Nation values, that kind of comes down to what are your concrete policies and actions over just um, mere speeches and policies. So that's kind of how I framed it. And at the moment, you can see some of the um, countries that are potentially more effective in their response to the crisis are the ones that have very strong policies and actions in place, whether it's um, economic packages, whether it's um, decisions to go down into stages of lockdowns pretty early and consistently, uh, whether it is uh, police um, enforcing lockdowns and so forth. Um, those things need to be concrete and not just, you know, things that are sort of words and speeches. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Do you think, um, just to, you know, name names a little bit, do you think that New Zealand was perhaps a good example of doing that? 
Um, I think New Zealand's doing very well, so we can definitely um, tell from the numbers. There are a number of countries, Australia not doing bad at all, um, especially considering the relative size difference as well. Mm. Um, and as well as a number of other countries that are doing really well in terms of the numbers. Um, it's, I won't say it's early days, but yeah, we've still potentially, unfortunately, got a bit of a way to go to see how it all pans out in the long term. Um, but yeah, we, we do see a link or at least uh, starting to see a link between um, countries that are quite firm and uh, quite strict in their responses compared to those have, who have possibly been a bit more slow. All right, Rashina, I'm going to ask you to indulge me. Valley number three, customer collaboration over contract negotiation. What does this feel like um, outside of software? Yeah, so um, if you think about customers, it's basically who you're developing the software for. So now if you think about that in a sort of a national context or a country context, um, governments are in place to serve communities. So uh, that's, that's who your customer is, really. And but when you're looking to make decisions, as the leadership tries to make decisions around um, normal business as usual or crisis management or what have you, you have to have some form of community collaboration going on there rather than just um, making decisions behind closed doors. And so I think that's, that's the value that's trying to capture the idea of a collaborative leadership that works with the people to make decisions. Yeah, I like the idea that they're not placed in opposition. It's not about winners and losers and on you know either side of a, a contract. Mm. Although I'd contend that a good contract should have two winners, <laughs> but still. Um, so our final agile value, responding to change over following a plan. This one is not such a big leap. No, and not, it's, it's possibly the easiest one to transfer on to just about any situation. And... I guess the only thing I'll say there, though, is, um, you know, when you talk about responding to change in an agile manner, uh, we talk about responding swiftly, but the response itself, now I've been thinking about this a bit more, the response itself doesn't always need to be swift. I mean, um, it's not about pace or how fast you are doing something. Um, the response sometimes, or to be agile sometimes, can mean to be slow. Mm. and to mean to stop doing something. For example, for us to slow down as countries and economies and take a step back and um, perhaps put our sort of um, health ahead of our economies temporarily. We can't do that, you know, afford to do that in the long run, but temporarily while we recover as people. Um, and, yeah, so sometimes responding to change is about slowing down. Yeah, and I guess making um, making an impact and a meaningful long-term impact, and I guess um, it, it does remain to be seen when we do come out of the other side of this particular Petri dish we're all living in, um, what sort of long-term impactful changes um, will, will continue to, um, to, to happen. So, would, um, Rashida, would you be interested in um, whipping open your crystal ball and do you think that they're in the, um, perhaps in the Australian, um, you know, case, what, what sort of things do you think that we're likely to learn from, from your um, agile learnings and your knowledge? What do you think we're likely to learn and carry with us longer term? Now, that's a very good point. I think, look, if we haven't learned anything from this, then it's all really been pointless, to be honest. Um, in terms of the learning, and I, I definitely don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did. <laughs> Speculate wildly. <laughs> well, in, in the current 
scenario. It wouldn't be nice to have uh, career options. Um, I don't, <laughs> but I do not, unfortunately, have a crystal ball. Um, I will say that um, the main learnings, I think, is um, the fact that digital transformation, for example, is possibly easier than a lot of us thought. Mm. Because we've been sort of really thrown headfirst into it, um, and we realize that look, things, some things, not everything, so some some things can work remotely. Um, yes, it's not the same as face to face, and yes, face to face is the most preferred. But if it can be done temporarily, it can also be done in other contexts where it saves, um, you know, on um, things like commutes uh, on some occasions, uh, helping with uh, pollution, for example, things like that, mm. uh, where, where it is a must, then we can do that. And also it just made us realize that we can trust people. We can trust them to do their jobs. We don't have to be breathing on their back. Uh, watching what they're doing um, or to be taking count of how many clicks per minute on the screen and that, those kind of monitoring tricks that are unfortunately uh, starting to seep into some of these remote working um, sort of uh, platforms. Mm. Uh, just, just trusting people to do the best that they can in their job. I think that's a really important message, but not everybody's at the same place in their digital transformation journey. And you're hearing stories anecdotally, I think, of of places where they're enabled to work remotely and have had flexible working options for a long time, and they've made the transition quite seamlessly, I think. But then you you also hear other stories where people have um, not felt equipped, not even with the hardware and software that they require, and then also not with the cultural values that will support this sort of this sort of um, change it's a massive change if you haven't Absolutely. eased into it you know where where are people getting their advice on on how to do this you know how to build that the sort of trust that they need in their teams um, aside from the technology supporting it to, to actually get things done in this environment do you think yeah um look uh, a lot of it is the responsibility i think of their employers to uh, make sure that that environment is supportive in terms of um, the, just the basics of the platform, the devices, you know, what software do I need to get started and so forth. Um, can you, you know, just uh, sort of referring back to the um, a speaker just before me, um, do I have NBN? Is my, you know, <laughs> do I have enough bandwidth to support all of this? Um, definitely, I think employers have a great role to play in that. And then, um, and that's at the systemic level because you provide this to everybody. Um, but on more one-to-one level, when you have uh, your managers and your supervisors, that's where the trust factor comes in, just checking in on people to see that they're, they're okay um, and they're able to do what they can do. But you're, you're very right. It's, um, it's, there's a big uh, sort of a gap and uh, there's a big sort of um, inequity between um, people that are very much ahead of the curve because they have been sort of um, doing it for a while versus people who thought they could, you know, avoid this for some more time but have had to just sort of face it. So, yeah. So, Rashida, it, it, yeah. Yeah. as someone who has spent so much of their brain power dedicated to thinking about um, what it is to be agile, you know, self-organising teams, this this way of, of being responsive and um, still getting things done. I wonder if you could reflect personally on uh, how your journey might have affected your life. Like, did you ever get to a point where you're like, this is a great idea, I'm going back to my house and we're reorganising the way that we, we do everything? You know, did, did you ever go through that stage? 
At a personal level, um, I, I, I would say we have adopted it in bits and parts. So, for example, <laughs> and, and this is, trust me, I, am, I mean, my, my kids um, are probably listening at this point, um, <laughs> uh, would, would, would joke around quite often. Um, uh, but mom, wasn't my first word I ever said agile? <laughs> um, <laughs> it probably was. Um, and... <laughs> A is for Agile. A for Agile, absolutely. And the fact, uh, the one thing that we we have done as a family, though, is we've had some um, sort of family retrospectives, if you like, where we kind of just sit around in a circle and we talk about things that are working well, things that aren't working well, and what can we do to improve. So oftentimes we do have that kind of a retrospective session. It has worked. But the trick there, as with software, also so at home, is to remind yourself to do it often enough and and be regular with it. Yeah, I love that, and I think that at this time, it's just a, it's a funny little note to go. Let's take what's useful from whatever discipline it might come from. Mm. And I love to think mm. that in software development, we've had useful concepts like the retrospective. I'm sure there must be psychological, you know, counselling session type frameworks that do very similar things. Mm. Um, I, I find mm. it a very constructive framework anyway, and uh, I use it almost as much as the start, stop, continue, which uh, I would yep. like to throw out there. I think that's a that's a healthy frame to. To, to you know, if you're living in a share house at the moment and you're going through some issues with all the intense situations, maybe it's time mm. to have a sit down and go like, what's working? What should we start doing? What should we stop doing? What should we continue doing? Let's just you know get on the same page. Um, and yeah, that would I be a super geeky idea. household. There's probably yeah. a lot of a lot of listeners side eyeing their housemates <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think personal Kanban as well is something that's worked for a lot of people in yes. terms of having these um, uh, streamlined um, rows of, of tasks that need to be done over time and people voluntarily taking responsibility of chores within a house. It can happen. It sounds magical, but it does happen. Yeah, for those unfamiliar with that, do Google your Kanban boards. While lots of people mm-hmm. do a, a real physical one with lots of sticky notes, it's, yep. there's plenty of virtual possibilities to create those on interactive digital whiteboards that sort of thing and I love that stuff yeah it's great yeah Yeah. speaking our language look we've been speaking with Dr Rashina Hoda she is an associate professor with Monash University's Faculty of Information Technology and an expert in agile as we've heard this evening you can keep up with her research at rashina.com thanks so much for being with us this evening thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure Right, we're going. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Hello, Dan and Vanessa. Thanks for being with us this evening. Really nice to know that you're out there. We are your station in isolation. It is April Amnesty, and it's a time when we uh, try and pick up on any people who might not have subscribed during the Radiothon or maybe they're lap subscribers, maybe it's just been on your mind. Um, I think you've probably heard lots of messages about how it's a particularly challenging time for the station, just as it is for the rest of our community. If you happen to be in a position where you're able to contribute something to the station at this time, it's, um, it's really valued by everyone here. 
It's been amazing how a crisis galvanises people. Mm. This is not a slack group by any measure with so many volunteers around, but there is a core office staff here who work so hard to make sure that systems don't fail Mm. and that we just come at you 24-7, hopefully a friendly voice through the the radio anytime you want us. And um, a big thank you to all the the RRR staff here who've been keeping this going. Uh, I know it means a lot to me being able to come in and, and speak to you oh absolutely it's it's so important and it's just the best bunch of people if you are in a position to sling a few dollars um towards your friendly local community radio station um you can visit the website and um hook us up a bit there so it's triple um we can also suggest that you pick up a sweet sweet piece of triple r merchandise as well that helps too and i must say we do the coolest stubby holders and t-shirts oh, yeah. in the land. That also Davis so, t-shirt I love so, so much. Baby onesies. Baby onesies are pretty adorable. And and you know if if the kind of you know the feeling of contributing to your community through a, a subscription or a donation to Triple I isn't enough, there's some stuff you can get too. Like there, I, uh, there was a promo earlier in the show. Some seriously cool stuff. We're not eligible because we're on Triple R, but you too can have some of that awesome stuff. Um, and I, it's too far away for me to read. I'm just gonna, just trust me. It's it's really cool. So go to the <laughs> website, check it all out. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so we wanted to share with you uh, something that you might want to indulge in if you have a little bit of extra time. I know that I'm on reduced working hours. I'm sure lots of people out there are in various situations of work. If you want to take on a bit of learning in your downtime, uh, in December last year, the Finnish government launched Elements of AI. So it's an artificial intelligence online learning course and it's free. It has six sections, each taking between five to ten hours to complete. So it's no it's no little walk in the park this one but it covers topics from the completely technical to the philosophical aspects of artificial intelligence it was created to help educate Finnish citizens on the basics of AI um, but they've expanded the scope now and they're aiming to educate one percent of all EU citizens in the basics by next year which is just really laudable to do that they're translating it to all the languages that get Mm. spoken throughout the EU yeah it's fantastic so hopefully there might be a few of our listeners who hop onto that and they can expand it out to the AU yeah (laughs) oh god I'm sorry oh my gosh well I'm going to dabble I'll report back I'm very curious Hey, we want to say a massive thank you to tonight's guests. We had Dr. Stephen Conway, waxing lyrical on broadband, a games and interactivity lecturer at Swinburne University of Technology. Did we learn a lot here or did we did we just feel like validated in our in our sense that perhaps well, our I'm, broadband wasn't up to scratch? I mean, you know, in the however many years that I've been on the show, um, it's been the constant conversation, and like it's been, it's just been this undercurrent of um, you know everything that we do is the fact that we could have had an incredible broadband network in this country. No, but it does feel particularly um, pointy right now mm. when we go. This is exactly the sort of occasion that was foreseen. Mm. We would need to, you know all be working remotely. Well, th- that's it. You yeah. Know, but the, like, and and but the, fact, the fact that it was, was kind of was this, this situation we're in right now, you know, it is unprecedented. Mm. But we could, sure some, we could have been We could have been better prepared for it. We could have absolutely been better prepared for it. And it will have been modelled in those original strategic planning 
times. Yeah. Absolutely, it would have been part of the yeah. worst case scenario bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's really no excuse to be turning around. And, you know, a big, big chunk of it is, you know, there have been throwaway comments by politicians in the past, um, you know, oh, it's just gamers and entertainment. That's got nothing to do with our economy. And who, boy, wake up call. Yeah. I love when Ro puts her risk hat on. It's it's very appealing. <laughs> I love what you, you know. Get me Ro- into trouble. <laughs> I've got to say also thank you to our other guests this evening, Associate Professor Rashina now at Monash University in the Faculty of Information Technology. Um, incredible insights into Agile. You really do have to go deep to be able to then come back up again and, and relate it to broader society. Very impressive. Uh, thanks to our podcaster, Yazan Saif. Unfortunately, they haven't been able to get in and podcast because, you know, the station's very locked down, but we thank them for their services anyway. And Talks producer, as always, Elizabeth McCarthy. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Ro. Thank you, thanks, Vanessa. Thanks, listeners. Woo-hoo. It's been great to have you. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. 